Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Amazon tried to roll out some algorithms to do resume screening internally. And whatever they did, they couldn't get rid of a gender bias that the algorithm was picking up. And they eventually decided not to roll this out. Now, Amazon is a large enough company, has a lot at stake, and did all the tests and realized that there are these biases and they did, decided not to roll it out. But who knows, there might be companies that are using these advanced AI that have uh, these biases. And so they are making mistakes as well. So I think we also have to think about, you know, not only in terms of retraining humans, but also these AI have their limitations as well. And so how do we best use them? Um, and when we think about where, you know, these biases and where they come from at the end of the day, uh, you know, we talked about machine learning and the fact that these AI are mostly learning from data. So they're picking up biases uh, that are in the data. So uh, a recruiting algorithm is trying to figure out, you know, which people to invite for a job interview. And it's looking at decisions made by others in the past. And if there have been biases that humans have had, it picks up those biases and now it institutionalizes the biases and it almost scales their impact because it's making those decisions systematically for millions. And so we have to worry about those issues as well. So I think there's a number of issues. There's a, a short-term issue around algorithm bias. There's an issue about workforce training. So I think the ramifications are huge. If we select one technology that's going to have a huge impact on society over the next 50 years that we need to prepare for as individuals, as regulators today, then it would be AI. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Karthik, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Srini, thanks for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually was introduced to you by way of your publicist who sent me a copy of your book, which we will talk about in quite a bit of detail. But before we get to the book, um, given that you and I are both of Indian descent, I want to ask you, what did your parents do for a living? And what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career? Yeah, so I had a a very middle-class upbringing in India back in the 80s. So my parents were uh, both uh, working uh, professionals. In fact, they were uh, working in state-owned banks. Uh, In fact, during that period, uh, all the banks in India were uh, state-owned. So my dad and my mom both worked um, in banks. Um, And I think in terms of how it affected me, I think, um, you know, again, you rewind back to the India of, uh, the early 80s, mid 80s, you know, there weren't a whole lot of opportunities. Um, and uh, the only way for somebody to get out of that rut was, you know, you had to become an engineer or a doctor and you had to excel academically. So uh, I was a person who was very much interested in, you know, writing and, and creative things. But um, you know, the message all around me at home and school was, wow, you need to study and get uh, better grades if you need to go anywhere in life. So I think eventually at some point in late high school, it kind of uh, had its impact and I uh, changed uh, uh, courses. I changed my approach to everything. Um, uh-huh. So I think it generally that competition, the intensity of the competition, the focus on academics um, and this sense of you know, you'll be stuck in this uh, unless you work hard and get out of it. Um, You know, all of that shapes you uh, in many ways. Yeah. So I wonder, I know from having read the book and also having read your bio that you do far more than, uh, you know, than just do work as an engineer. You're a professor. You now have written a book. I know that you like making films. I wonder how you maintained your creative spark uh, despite this narrative that was going on all around you. Well, to be honest, I gave up that creative side of me for a long time. So, uh, you know, at some point I decided, okay, if this is what is expected of me, this is how I earn my respect in society, then, you know, uh, so be it. I'll show them I can play that game too. Um, And so I ended up uh, doing engineering. I did very well in engineering, I went to a, a, one of the top uh, engineering schools in India. I did well there. I ended up doing a PhD. I became an academic. I wrote research papers. And then one fine day, it struck me. Uh, I'm going to say this was probably around 10, 12 years back uh, after I got tenure at Wharton that I had given up this other side of me, the, another side which was um, very uh, deep and integral to who I am. And I'd kind of 
you know, really suppressed it. So I decided that I was no longer going to do that. Um, and so then I enrolled in a filmmaking uh, summer program. Uh, and then after that, you know, over the next several years, spended, uh, started spending weekends making short films. Um, I once um, wrote, uh, took a sabbatical um, from Wharton. And during that time, during my spare time, I was writing uh, a screenplay. I spent some time going to Bollywood, speaking to <laughs> producers and directors in Bollywood, trying to convince them, hey, you know, this professor can actually direct movies, put your money in, in this project. Of course, I couldn't convince them, but I tried anyway. Uh-huh. Uh, and then this book also came out of that interest to, or that desire to cater to that creative side. And I said, look, I've uh, <clears throat> done a lot of uh, technical research, but it would be nice to try and write uh, for the masses and write, uh, uh, you know, in a format uh, that uh, would allow me to tap into my creative side. So uh, I tried to write this book um, in a way where uh, I think lay people can relate to it. And and hopefully I've shared some interesting stories and, and uh, perspectives on uh, on AI and, and algorithmic decision-making, which both sound very technical, but which affect all of us. And so the goal of the book was to try and uh, address that topic more creatively. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to the book. Uh, I, I have to ask you about the Bollywood piece <laughs> because I, I wanted to know, one, what was the reaction from people in your life when you said, you know what, I'm going to take a sabbatical from Wharton, this like prestigious business school where I've gotten tenure, where I've probably crossed off all of the checkboxes of society's life plan and basically met every sort of checkbox my Indian parents probably expect of me. Uh, what was their reaction and why do you think that more people don't do what you did? Well, so I'll tell you the reaction. So my wife was very amused and um, she actually <laughs> asked me, what's next? Do you want to be a gymnast? Um, and so that was her exact question uh, for me. Um, my dad and I actually have this shared um, uh, love for books. And so I remember his question for me was, um, why a movie screenplay? Why don't you write a nonfiction book? Um, and I think it was a very practical suggestion. But I was pretty committed to um, writing the book. But mostly, I, I don't think anyone got in the way because at that point, I had done what was expected of me in some ways. And my parents, obviously, at that point were, um, you know, were willing to support whatever I was doing. So uh, they, they all had some questions. They all found it unusual, uh, but no, but there were certainly no uh, barriers or roadblocks from the family. Um, Mm -hmm. In terms of your question of why don't other people do it? uh, Yeah. So I think it's, it's, it's interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, I see this a lot with my students. So I do this, you know, walking home office hours with my students. And so one of the things I've gotten into a habit of is every evening I walk back home from campus to uh, my place uh, with a student with me. And we talk about anything they want to talk about, not just my course. Um, and you know, usually it's entrepreneurs who've got a startup idea, but every once in a while I'll have a student who is, you know, living somebody else's life and, you know, is kind of really struggling with it. And sometimes it's a talk with an alumnus who, you know, 10 years later is kind of asking, you know, why am I still doing this? So I see that, you know, why don't enough people, uh, try to take hold of their own narrative? Wow, it's a it's a it's a hard question. I still haven't figured it out. I think um, it 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 gets to you if you don't. Um, and so either, you know, some people manage to figure out a way to, you know, switch and change directions in a uh, very nonlinear way, and it works out for them. But it's very risky, and others are very scared of it. But I usually, you know, I think that, you know, there are ways to uh, handle that. For example, by making it a hobby and uh, sort of creating time for hobbies or figuring out where exactly your personal interests and your professional skills overlap. And for me, again, this book was an example of that where I, you know, I tried to write uh, that screenplay once. I, in fact, wrote another screenplay a second time. Uh, I know eventually at some point I'll make that movie. But for now, I kind of felt like, hey, this book is a way for me to combine my uh, skill sets 
with my interests. So I think sometimes it's figuring out those synergies. And, you know, that's where it's more doable. Uh, and people, I think, worry about, uh, you know, that there's this really big transition I have to make and there's financial risks and so on. Mostly, I think we're all afraid of risks. I think we are well born to take risks. We take a lot of risks as, as kids. And then over time, we learn fear. And that fear then runs the narrative for all of us. Um, it runs it for me too. But, you know, periodically, I try and break free from that um, and try something. So even with startups or with books and with films and so on, it's all been, you know, how do I know cater to that creative side and you know it's not about taking reckless chances but how do we take calculated risks because I, I think at the end of the day we have to do that or you go through life um and and one fine day i know we'll we'll regret it if we haven't taken those chances yeah you know, one thing I wonder is in these conversations with your students, how do they differ across cultures? Because I'm guessing you probably have a wide range of students, Indians, Asians, mm -hmm. uh, Caucasians. Like, How do those conversations tend to differ when you have them uh, across cultures? Yeah, so I'll preface what I'm going to say by um, clarifying. So I'm a professor at the Wharton School of Business. So we end uh -huh. up with students who, uh, you know, first of all, uh, academically have excelled. Um, and they're often type A personalities. They're, uh, you know, been chasing these goals. Uh, and then they come to Wharton where they're surrounded by others like them. Um, so people who are already competitive get even more competitive. And at the same time, you have, you know, this pressure to perform. And, uh, you know, at some level, none of them or very few of them have asked what is it they really want and mostly they're kind of just chasing targets and so they tend to do that so coming back to your question you know how does it differ across different uh, groups of students so you know i think the most uh common instance of a student saying you know i'm doing this i don't love it i don't know why i'm doing this um it often comes from say an Asian American kid, right? And and mm -hmm. the story is almost always, you know, my parents wanted me to do this, therefore I'm doing it. Now I'm studying and all my friends are pursuing investment banking because that's the job we want. Uh, and therefore I'm doing that too. Uh, my parents don't understand why I would give up a Goldman Sachs internship to go to do these other things. Uh, um, and so therefore I'm taking up that Goldman Sachs um, internship. Um, and I think that's the most common sort of uh, problem that I see. But it's not always Asian American kids. I mean, it's most common among them. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I don't want to present this as that's the typical student. That is probably, you know, every once in a while I'll have a student who's facing that or going through that. But then there's a lot of students who are there because, you know, they've actually discovered they have a passion for entrepreneurship or business or technology, and they're doing that. Um, but then there's also people who have come there sort of following a path that was given to them. And now they're continuing to follow their path that somebody else has given them. But, you know, starting to realize now that you're becoming an adult, you've got to craft your own as well. Mm-hmm. I wonder, uh, both being of Indian descent, having been raised with the narrative about the importance of education, mm -hmm. and now you yourself being an educator, I think you and I are probably a little bit far apart in age, but I mean, the world is so different now than it was even when I went to college and when you went to college. And I, I realize implicit in this question probably is my assumption that the fact that the, the education system is broken. Yeah. But you know, I've had this conversation with Adam Grant, I've had it with Cal Newport, and I wonder you know, you from the vantage point that you have, what do you think that the future of education is going to look like? Um, what would you tell parents who are listening to this? And if you have kids, what do you give, you know, uh, what advice do you give to them about this? Yeah, that's a tough question. Uh, <laughs> I've been known to do that to people. Especially for an educator. But uh, yeah, you know, again, we have this joke at home, my wife keeps saying, you know, for an educator, you're amazingly skeptical about 
formal education. Um, and I, I forget who said this, right? But somebody said, "Don't get let schooling uh, don't let schooling get in the way of your education." Um, yeah. And you know, I'm certainly not that much of a skeptic. Uh, but I went to a school uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, where, you know, this was a, you know, first of all, this was India, and these were not progressive schools. They were following a very strict curriculum, strict set of rules. And my school in particular was an extreme within that uh, that type of education. Um, and so we had to wear uniforms, we had to make sure our shoes are polished a certain way, our shirts were tucked in a certain way, we had our name badge on. And anytime you're not doing one of these things, you get uh, punished for it, you get embarrassed, uh, humiliated almost publicly, you stand outside the school for a few hours, all passersby see you and so on. So it was a very different style of education. And I was actually um, not even average, you know, throughout middle school and early part of high school, I was kind of like a below average kind of student, middling, nothing exceptional about me. Um, so I struggled in that environment. Um, and then I ended up doing well and, and did a PhD and all of that, which people find surprising people who know me from that phase of my life. And mostly it was my FU to uh, society in some ways that, you know, I'll show you I can do this too. And it was that. But it was not because I wanted to. It was mostly trying to prove something to someone. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that was at least my story with regard to education. I know I'm not answering your question, mostly because sure. I don't have an answer to your question. Um, but I think at the end of the day, what I'm trying to say is that we all need to take control uh -huh. of what education means for us. And I think we're today in a very different place, not only in the U.S., but also, you know, geographically, I'm in a different place, India versus the U.S., but also a different time. Um, I think education is becoming more progressive. Uh, at the same time, uh, education is becoming more flexible. You define what it is for you. Uh, employers are also starting to say that, look, you know, you don't necessarily need that degree for me to take you seriously. So I think it's about excelling now uh, mm -hmm. rather than having a certificate that you kind of put in your resume. Um, yeah. And I think that certainly means that we now need to figure out what is it that we truly want to excel in and go pursue excellence. And that can be done within a formal framework. And I think that's what that's the role education will play, which is, you come in with a set of goals and we provide you the flexibility to go uh, pursue that. I think that's how people have to relate to education. I think for my own kids, you know, they're a bit too small right now. Uh, so I'm not like seriously thinking about uh, high school or, or uh, college education for them. But, but when I do, I hope the approach I will have is that, you know, I wouldn't care about, you know, hey, I want you to go to this school and get that kind of a degree. But it's more about, you know, understand your personality and understand what you like and what you'll be good at and make good choices and, and find the kind of educational resources that will help you excel. Um, yeah. I still believe that the degree programs stay, they still are relevant, uh, but in a very different way than they were 20 years back. So I think that the reason I brought that up, you know, 20 years back, I, I went to a school, uh, I went to school at Berkeley, which in a lot of ways is like Wharton filled with overachievers. Mm -hmm. And when I look back at it, I think the thing that struck me most, and I, I think, you know, it took 20 years of life experience to have this awareness, is that we had a very clear definition of success. It was, you know, everything you just mentioned, McKinsey, Goldman Sachs, uh, you know, or med school or law school, and not just any med school or law school, like the top that you could possibly get into. And that was kind of it. It was kind of like, these are the options in front of you. If you don't choose them, you're a total screw up. Yeah. And, you know, I, I realized I made every decision in college based on what I thought would get me a job. And I realized I totally missed out because of that. And I, I wonder why you think that is. And, you know, is this more common in, in elite type schools where, you know, you're at a UPenn or a, a Harvard? Uh, and, and, you know, how do you unwind that? Like, how do you undo that narrative in society? Because 
uh, you know, hopefully it doesn't take other people 20 years of life experience to figure that out. Right. Uh, you know, I think people who get into these places, it's not that they walk in as a clean slate and then the environment makes you that you're almost walking in that because just to get into these places, it's so competitive. You're competing and you're kind of ticking off or checking off certain boxes and making sure I can get into these schools like Berkeley, Harvard, Penn, and, and or whatever else. Um, and so you're already coming in that way. And now you're surrounded by everyone else who's like you, and then it goes to a whole new level. Uh, that competitive streak, that um, approach of chasing this goal that you don't even know why you want it, but because everyone else is chasing it, you join the race as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that does happen a lot in these places. Uh, I think the good news is that, you know, it's no longer that one set of goals. I think, um, you know, for people who are good at it, who can be, uh, who can pursue academic excellence, who can chase those academic opportunities, excel at these demanding places like a McKinsey or Goldman Sachs. I think it's great. You still can do that. But for people who can, who have something to offer, something valuable to offer to society, um, to an employer or, you know, as an entrepreneur, I think now there are all these other opportunities, which is great. The flip side of it though, is that previously, as you said, there's this one goal that everyone knows and there's something to chase. And you suddenly say there is no finish line, there is no goal. And all of a sudden, I think a lot of people will now struggle to figure out what am I even supposed to do? And I think while it's going to help unleash a lot of possibilities and potential for a lot of people who struggle under this formal, intense, um, academic goal setting. It also will mean some people uh, will struggle with the lack of clear direction. And so I think we are navigating both of that. But, you know, the, yeah. if we go all the way on this um, to the other side, then I think, you know, complete lack of structure is going to be a problem. Mm -hmm. um, and I sometimes hear, you know, kids saying, uh, or even sometimes their parents saying, Look, Bill Gates was a dropout or look, Steve Jobs was a dropout. You know, I don't need right. this education and so on. I look, I mean, let's be clear, uh, you know, Bill Gates may have been a dropout, but he dropped out of Harvard and, <laughs> right. um, and he dropped out with a very specific opportunity that he was going to pursue. Um, uh -huh. He didn't just say, I'm going to float around life and see what comes uh, uh, that, that happened. So, you know, I think the people sometimes mistake all these successes of dropout success as being a causal relationship that, Hey, you can uh -huh. just, uh, you know, get rid of all this structure in your life and then I'll succeed. And, and it's not that we all need some structure. Uh, maybe we had too much of it. At least I certainly did um, where goals were being set for me and, um, and things like that. But I think we all need some structure. So we have to all find some middle ground between uh, the two extremes. Yeah. So two more questions around this, and I promise we'll get to the book. I know oh, that no, I'm enjoying this so much. Really. I know I should talk about uh, the book and hey, <laughs> we'll get to there. buy it, but you know. Yeah, no, I, I promise we'll get there. <laughs> no, let's certainly cover this because I'm enjoying it. Uh, you know, the, there are two things that struck me in, over the last couple of months, I think particularly because I turned 40, my sister just got married. And, and these two things have been on my mind, especially after having finished a second book with a publisher and not being under contract to do a third one. Uh, you, I'm guessing you've probably read the book, uh, The Road to Character by, by David Brooks, or you've probably heard of I've it. Heard it. He I talks haven't about read this, it yet. Uh, he talks about this distinction between resume values and eulogy values. Mm -hmm. And so many of the things that you and I are talking about, you know, getting into these top schools, um, working at these top firms like the Googles, the McKinsey's, and the Goldman Sachs are all resume values. Yeah. So I wonder why you think as a society we have so much emphasis on resume values as opposed to eulogy values. Well, I think the emphasis on resume values is somewhat natural in a society um, which is uh, built around constraints and resource constraints in particular. And if the opportunities are few and far be be in between, um, and you know, there's 
you know, this is a natural human instinct. It's a survival instinct, right? We want food, we want shelter, we want water. And it's so natural in us that if there are some constraints around us and if there's resource constraints, then we want to actually uh, adjust so that we get those resources. And so I think the resume value simply reflects what it takes for us to have the resources we need. But I think we're also shifting to a world that was built around, um, you know, scarcity mindset uh, to a new world where at least for, you know, a some section of society and in some countries where, you know, it's no longer this zero sum game and it's no longer this either you have it or, or I have it. And, and if I don't get it, you know, I'm done. I won't have these resources. So I think, you know, as society gets wealthier, as our basic needs are taken care of, I think we start to think about, you know, uh, no longer the resume values, uh, but, uh, you know, these other values that are more integral and core to us. And, and you mentioned you just turned 40, and I think that's probably an interesting age where that happens to um, many of us. Uh, for me, and I, I'm... Let's see, I'm 41 right now, so I turned 40 recently as well. And for me, um, this moment of reckoning came up uh, to some extent a few years back when my dad was diagnosed with uh, terminal cancer and he passed away soon after. And, um, you know, I, I think my foundations were shaken. I was questioning always everything I was asking what's the point of all this? Where are we headed? You know, the kinds of questions we hear about, uh, but it's hard to internalize. And you reach a certain stage in your life where you uh, understand uh, the finiteness of your life uh, as a more tangible concept and something you relate to as opposed to a theoretical concept. And for me, when that happened, yes, I then I was really you know, starting to question almost everything I did, you know, why am I doing this? What's the end goal? Is it giving me joy? Is it giving me financial stability? What What is the point of all of these things? And I realized that a lot of times I'm, you know, chasing uh, these beautiful dreams where at the end of the day, you know, I might not even get there. Um, the analogy I have is, you know, I did this um, Rhine Valley cruise many years ago. In fact, that was when I proposed to my wife um, and we were doing this cruise and there were these beautiful castles on top of these hills every few miles. And you kind of feel like, OK, well, let's get down over here and let's hike up to that castle. And I feel a lot of the goals we have early on in our life are like those castles where we look at it from a distant and distance and it looks so beautiful. But what I've realized over time is that, you know, we hike, we sort of take this road to this, uh, to that beautiful castle. And, you know, often we get lost on the way we never reach there. Or, you know, maybe we reach there, but we lose all these people who are with us in the journey. And we didn't realize that. Or we get there and finally we reach there and it's like, oh, this castle looks okay. It's not as beautiful or as amazing as I thought it is. It's, it's fine like any other castle. And our goals are like that. I mean, at the end of the day, we just are so focused on the goals and we adapt to those goals and we go chase those goals and we either don't make it um, and we make all these sacrifices or we eventually make it and it's, it's okay. I mean, the goal was, you know, not as beautiful as we thought it is. Um, and so I think for me, I've kind of, been asking myself, I haven't found the answers yet, but been asking myself, you know, how should the goal adapt to the individual rather than how should the individual adapt to the goal, right? Um, huh. And it's a tough, tough uh, set of things we all have to take care of. I wish life were easier, but, you know, it isn't. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? 
United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. When I, when I heard you say that, it reminded me of this quote that I've probably mentioned on the podcast before. Uh, you know, Sam Jones as a photographer, and he was interviewing Ed Helms uh, right at the height of his career when The Hangover had just come out. And he was so famous that he was being recognized in the streets everywhere he went. And he said, how does it feel to be at this point in your career? He said that life is a series of false horizons. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. Yeah. So, one more question around this, and then we'll get to the uh, content of the book. Uh, you know, we're talking about this idea of, of measurement and, and metrics and accolades and achievements. And this has been fresh on my mind because I'm working on an idea for a new book about what it means truly to be successful on your own terms. And part of my research led me back into Clayton Christensen's book, How Will You Measure Your Life? Mm. And I wonder at this point in your life, having, you know, reached tenure, having built startups, uh, having written this book, how do you measure your life? Yeah, it's, wow, you're asking me these tough questions, Srini. Making me... I've been known to do that to people. <laughs> um, making me peer into my own soul. Uh, how will I measure, how do I measure my life so far? Um, you know, I I think mostly it's, a series of missteps um, and failed attempts. But the good news is that I have been alert and I've rarely repeated the missteps and I've learned from each misstep. And I think the one thing that I can say is, you know, I have continued to learn and I've never had this hubris 
you know, to uh, this hubris in terms of, you know, who I am or where have I arrived? Uh, you know, I'm still learning. I'm still trying to get places. I'm still trying to figure out who I am, where I need to be. Um, so I, I think in terms of being a, a learning entity, I've, I think, done well. Uh, I've, yeah, I've had a lot of missteps, of course, along the way. Um, I guess the other piece that in terms of measuring my life, uh, the part where I feel the glass is half full is that I have not let fear dictate everything I do. I think a lot of people uh, do the super safe thing because, you know, fear drives that narrative. And so whether that's meant, uh, like I said, I tried to make the movie, maybe it didn't happen, but I don't regret having spent a lot of time on that. I tried to work on startups. Some of them failed. One of them succeeded. Um, But again, I didn't let fear prevent me from trying those things. And and mostly, uh, you know, I think in terms of that half full, full sort of perspective on, on my life, I think it's the fact that I've been open to learning, the fact that I've, I often take stock and reflect, uh, which has been helpful. And the fact that I've not let fear run the narrative has been helpful. But in the part that's half... Uh, empty you know yeah so i you know for a significant chunk of my life i chased goals where i didn't even know why i was chasing them i did it because it was expected of me from society and i did that um you know it gives me a certain financial security today so maybe it's not that bad um but yeah there there have been many missteps along the way too but that's life i guess yeah well, let's do this. Let's get uh, into the content of the book. Uh, you know, Human's Guide to Machine Intelligence. What prompted your interest in this particular subject, and what is it that are the implications for uh, of artificial intelligence? Not just for the way that we work, which there are many. Um, and I think you know what I'm realizing is this is much more prevalent in our lives than most people are even aware of. Uh, but what is it? What are the implications of all of this for the future of our lives? Yeah. By the way, before I answer that question, wow, I came prepared for these kinds of questions in this interview, but you took me to a whole new place. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, coming back to your question, um, you know, we we talked a little bit about why I wrote this book. You know, I've, I've spent a lot of time as part of my research and as part of my work studying how technology and in particular intelligent algorithms uh, drive our decisions whether as consumers or, you know, whether it's in our workplace. And so uh, I feel that a lot of people, as you suggested, don't fully recognize the kind of impact they're having on our lives. And I wanted to explore that a little bit, what it means, you know, the history of how we arrived there, uh, arrived here, uh, certain philosophical questions around, uh, you know, what it means to be outsourcing a lot of our decision-making to machines, what does it mean for our humanness or our humanity? Um, and also just certain uh, policy and uh, societal questions around, you know, what are the implications of machines making so many decisions for us? And so that's what I wanted to explore. And, you know, I think most people don't re- realize that intelligent algorithms and, and AI, it's running uh, so much of our lives and making so many decisions for us. You know, whether it is what products we buy on Amazon or what media we consume or on Netflix or who we date on uh, something like Tinder, but also very critical decisions like you apply for a loan and there's an algorithm that's kind of deciding whether we get the loan or not, or what should be the interest rate that we pay uh, for that loan. Uh, Or you apply for a job, increasingly algorithms are doing a lot of uh, uh, resume screening and figuring out which applicants are right for this uh, job and they're also making life and death decisions for us you know uh, in hospitals doctors are being asked to consult algorithms when it comes to diagnosing diseases when it comes to making uh, developing treatment plans uh, in courtrooms in the u.s judges and parole officers are asked to consult algorithms that predict uh, a defendant's likelihood of reoffending, and therefore that suggest what should be the right uh, sentence or whether a person should get parole or not 
So they're all around us. They're making so many decisions for us and about us. And the implications for society are huge. And that's what I wanted to explore in this. Hmm. You know, so one of the things that you said uh, in the book is that in this brave new world, many of our choices are in fact predestined and all the seemingly small effects that algorithms have on our decisions add up to a transformative impact on our lives. And you put that into the chapter about free will hmm. in an algorithmic world. And you know, many of us who are listening to this probably spend time on Facebook every day. We probably go to Twitter. We probably all use Netflix. Uh, you know, how do you how do you have this dichotomy of free will and the fact that algorithms are making so many of decisions? Like, how do we know we're not going to lose our minds or lose our power in this situation? Yeah, it's interesting, right? So we all are used to seeing, you know, Facebook. I guess show us news uh, stories and news feeds. Um, you know, Amazon, Netflix, all of these companies, the algorithm shows what products or media we should look at. You know, if you ask people, most people think they, they have a lot of control in the final decision that uh, we get all these recommendations, we politely nod at them and we do what we want. But actually the data suggests otherwise. So at Amazon, nearly a third of the purchases are driven by algorithmic recommendations. At Netflix, 80% of what we view is driven by recommendations by the Netflix algorithm. So these systems are having a huge impact on our choice and we don't realize it. And mostly their impact is very positive because, you know, there's so much media on Netflix. Do I want to waste time looking at all the junk until I find the right stuff? <laughs> I still find it difficult, even with the recommendations. I'm like, you know, I get to the end of the day. I'm like, okay, you know what? Maybe I should just watch Friday Night Lights again for the 10th time. <laughs> well, I don't know. I actually like the Netflix algorithm, um, but but maybe I'm not as open to watching the same thing for the 10th time. Maybe I'm just uh, yeah. a bit more experimental. But yeah, I think we're all different in that sense. But, uh, you know, I think these these algorithms at least can help narrow the set of options, focus our attention on a smaller set of more relevant alternatives, and who wouldn't value the productive productivity gain from that. Um, so yeah. I think the, there's a lot of potential value here. But I think the flip side, of course, is also, you know, you know, when you look at, for example, news being curated by algorithm. You know, exactly. That's where I wanted to go next. Yeah. That's what was going to be my next question. You read my <laughs> Right, right. So... You know, are we getting exposed to the right set of uh, and the broad set of perspectives or not? Is the algorithm saying, okay, I saw this person likes these kinds of news stories on these topics with these, uh, with right leaning or say left leaning, and I'm going to show him or her more of that, then that could be a problem. So I think the implications are huge. And who are we at the end of the day um, if we aren't just a sum total of all the choices we've made in terms of what information we consume, what we ate, and things like that? And that's what algorithms want to ultimately drive today they want to influence you know what we buy what we read what we eat um and i think that's pretty much us you know you add all those decisions that's you and i too. so decisions like what to eat what to wear what to buy on amazon like those don't have sort of ripple effect implications necessarily like who am i going to vote yeah. for um and I, I noticed, I only noticed this because, you know, I, based on, just use your imagination, based on the conversation we have, I tend to lean left. I'm an immigrant. I went to Berkeley. Uh, and I, like, I noticed when I even look at my YouTube recommendations, because I watch it from my Xbox, it's like I started watching Seth Meyers. Pretty soon after that, like all of my YouTube recommendations were Seth Meyers, Stephen Colbert. Uh, I was like, wow, everybody in my YouTube recommendations is totally anti-Trump. Like, <laughs> and I have a friend who told me he specifically goes to read Breitbart News at least once a week just because he wants to figure out what he's missing out on and seeing what are other people being told. Um, so, you know, I mean, aren't there dangerous implications for this too? There's there's a whole other side to this. And what are those? Yeah, huge implications. And we've seen it play out, right? I mean, it played out with uh, the 2016 elections where, uh, you know, people were saying, hey, you know, Facebook's algorithms put us in these echo chambers where we saw more and more of what we already know. And people didn't even see where the election was going to or how the it was going to end. There was also the fake news issue, which again was algorithm driven because Facebook initially had human editors who were who were uh, manually curating the trending news, uh, but they were accused of having a left bias. 
And so Facebook said, you know, algorithms can't be accused of having a left bias, so let's roll out algorithms. But then the algorithms weren't good at figuring out that a certain story is a fake story and then circulated that. So again, it drives elections. It has a huge impact. Um, There's no doubt about that. And in fact, one uh, interesting story I have here is that uh, back in 2016, it was actually late 2015, early 2016, uh, I came up with a proposal for my book. And the book proposal talked about a couple research studies where uh, you know, Facebook's algorithms was able to influence people's emotions, was able to influence people's decisions to vote or not. So, for example, when they ha- added the I voted button to Facebook, uh, it, uh, dem- you know, there was a noticeable increase in the number of people who voted. Um, so there were these research studies and I was talking about that. And in the proposal, I mentioned how it can actually drive and influence election outcomes. And that was my book proposal, which went to agents in the summer of 2016. And I remember one of the agents who read that. And by the time they read it, it was almost like uh, October or November of 2016. And she looked at my proposal and she said, look, you, you just wrote this book two years too late because your entire proposal is built around, uh, you know, how it can impact elections. Now that's played out. So you've got to change it and talk about what else is coming next. Um, but it's really interesting, you know, the, the book proposal talked about this and we saw it play out and we'll see it play out more and more. I think, uh, you know, a lot of our decisions are going to be driven by technology and by algorithms that are curating our world for us. Um, and so we've all got to, uh, take stock and take control. So for me in 2016, like your friend, I decided every day I go to New York times, but I'm also now go to Fox news and see what else is, what's the other perspective over here. Um, and so I try and break out of that filter bubble. Um, and so one of the things I do in the book is really talk about what can we do as individuals, what should regulators do, what should technology companies do so that we, um, you know, ultimately have control over this narrative of how algorithms and AI and technology shapes us. Yeah. So you know, we've talked about it from a, a sort of impact on humanity standpoint. I want to shift gears and talk about it from an impact on work standpoint, mm. because I know that so many people are like, oh, these AIs are going to steal our jobs. And what, you know, I had a, had a friend who, who basically did a PhD in machine learning. And I remember one day he kind of explained to me, he said, Srini, this isn't magic. He said, it's not like you can just dream up anything. But he said, anything in your life where you're using data probably can have artificial intelligence applied to it. So my first thought was starting to look at all the things that we did at the Unmistakable Creative that involved data. And the first place I went to was our email newsletter. And I thought, okay, open rates, click-through rates, subscribers. And we actually ended up hiring an AI company that layers on top of MailChimp that does you know, automated segmentation, make sure we're only engaging with our, you know, uh, most engaged subscribers. And it was mind boggling how much better the results got in the span of Mm. two months. Interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So I wonder what are the implications job wise and productivity wise for all of this? Again, huge implications. I think if you look at AI today is essentially, uh, as your friend said today, it's mostly what is known as machine learning and machine learning is the idea of Let's analyze a lot of data, figure out patterns, and then, you know, make predictions about the future, right? And so in in this case, for you, it was analyze the data on, you know, who's opening emails, who's clicking, and who what are they doing, and then make predictions of who will open the next email, who will actually engage, who will ignore it, and so on. And then, of course, those predictions then drive your marketing actions, um, and of course, you can also apply this to many other settings. And so you can apply it to medicine and you could ask yourself, uh, you know, can I use data to diagnose diseases? Because at the end of the day, what is a doctor doing? It's the doctor is looking at a bunch of symptoms and then matching it to past case histories and saying this looks a lot like that. And therefore, my hypothesis is that this person has pneumonia and not influenza, right? Or something like that. Um, and yeah. so... You know, you look at a number of settings, you know, what is a judge doing? Again, they're looking at the data on this particular case, matching it to all, you know, cases that they know of and saying that this is the best, you know, the closest other case or this is how I can interpret it. It's all at the end of the the day, data and pattern matching and so on. So, So I think a lot of what we do today is or can be automated for most of us. 
Uh, again, it'll vary from one industry to the other. There was a machine learning researcher who made this once famous but uh, controversial statement that we should stop training radiologists because everything they can do can be done by machine learning. And I think that statement is a bit extreme, but it kind of uh, mm-hmm. demonstrates the approach of a lot of computer scientists and machine learning folks in terms of we can automate this and we can automate that. Um, so a lot of what we do will get automated, but I think at the end of the day, we've got to think about, um, you know, how do we use this as an augmentation technology, uh, free up our time and have some of our routine tasks that we waste time on be automated for us. So we get more free time. Uh, you know, we can end up in one of two situations. Maybe we end up in a situation where, you know, it's hard to employ significant chunks of society. And so then we need to think about social security. Or we end up in a situation mm-hmm. where it's a utopia. Machines are doing a lot of what we do and we all, you know, need to work two, three hours a day and we get the rest of the day to ourselves. Who knows where we'll end up? I think, um, you know, anything is feasible, but there's no doubt the workplace will look very different. Um, and that's why in the book, you know, I tried not to go into that portion because, you know, it's a speculation of where we'll be 50 years from now. And that's important. But there are ways in which right. the algorithms are impacting us today. And and we're not actually even realizing it or paying attention to that. Yeah, I've, I've kind of like I said, I've kind of been amazed at all the various ways that AI has already become a big part of my life because my my research led me down this rabbit hole of all sorts of interesting tools. I found a slide design tool called beautiful.ai that allows you to make breathtaking presentations uh, in minutes. There are a lot of small things that we spend so much time on that I was baffled by. But, you know, we we're talking a little bit about the, the sort of implications for what the future of work might look like. Um, I had a, a presidential candidate, a guy named Andrew Yang mm. here. Uh, and we we're talking about this, and you said, you know, automation is coming. And I think the thing that's interesting to me about part of what's going to happen with automation is that up until you know this sort of next wave of change, every sort of technological shift we've had that automated things displaced blue collar labor. But for the first time in history, we're looking at a potential displacement of white collar labor. And I wonder, you know, like you said, I mean, is, is there a danger that we're going to have mass hysteria because of something like that? Because, you know, blue collar labor has been being displaced forever, but we've never had that with white collar labor. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt that, you know, white collar labor is going to be impacted by AI. We just talked about, you know, radiologists, um, you know, doctors and so on. So, uh, you know, a lot of white collar jobs will also be impacted. Um, I think, you know, we'll all have to retrain. Uh, there's no doubt about that. You know, creativity will start to matter a lot more than it did in the past. We'll also become more efficient. I think, uh, you know, we uh, will be freed from a lot of rote tasks that we have to do today. Um, and so that mm-hmm. freedom, you know, having that extra time will allow us to do more interesting things with what we already do at our workplace. Uh, but I think, yeah. yes, the white collar jobs also will be impacted. But I think, you know, when we think about automation and we're talking about, you know, where we'll be in 50, 100 years, the the path, you know, over the next several years is going to dictate how we end up. So, you know, as, as I mentioned, we could end up in a society where, you know, all of us have something to do and it's, you know, a very efficient uh, time. Maybe we work fewer hours a week or, you know, maybe a few of us are working full time and most of us have, uh, you know, nothing to offer because we don't have the skills. And then you need social security and all those other protective nets that governments have to offer. All of that depends on the the, uh, choices we make over the next few years. And that's also true for, you know, we were talking about biases earlier. We can't just assume this, um, the technology that we have is going to make all these decisions, automate a lot of the task and easily displace us because we're also starting to see that we're going to have some hiccups along the way. I mentioned earlier Mm -hmm. that there are algorithms that judges can consult, parole officers can consult. There was a story last year that, you know, these algorithms had a race bias. Uh, I mentioned earlier that algorithms can do resume screening. Uh, There was a story late last year, again, that talked about how Amazon tried to roll out some algorithms to do resume screening internally, and whatever they did, they couldn't get rid of a gender bias that the algorithm was picking up, and they eventually decided not to roll this out. Now, Amazon 
is a large enough company, has a lot at stake and did all the tests and realized that there are these biases and they did, decided not to roll it out. But who knows, there might be companies that are using these advanced AI that have uh, these biases. And so they are making mistakes as well. So I think we also have to think about, you know, not only in terms of retraining humans, but also these AI have their limitations as well. And so how do we best use them? Um, and when we think about where, you know, these biases and where they come from at the end of the day, uh, you know, we talked about machine learning and the fact that these AI are mostly learning from data. So they're picking up biases uh, that are in the data. So uh, a recruiting algorithm is trying to figure out, you know, which people to invite for a job interview. And it's looking at decisions made by others in the past. And if there have been biases that humans have had, it picks up those biases and now it institutionalizes the biases and it almost scales their impact because it's making those decisions systematically for millions. And so we have to worry about those issues as well. So I think there's a number of issues. There's a, a short-term issue around algorithm bias. There's an issue about workforce training. So I think the ramifications are huge. If we select one technology that's going to have a huge impact on society over the next 50 years that we need to prepare for as individuals, as regulators today, then it would be AI. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I want to finish with uh, two questions to, to bring us full circle. Uh, at this point in your life, having done all the things that you've done, uh, books, you know, tenure professor, what are you still uncertain about and what are you still afraid of? Well, um, what am I still afraid of? Well, you're back to the tough questions, huh? Um, yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I what I'm afraid of uh, are a couple of things. I think um, I'm noticing that, you know, over time we all become more risk averse. We all start to worry more. And uh, I worry that, you know, I might choose the easy, safe path and might not be willing to take on uh, new opportunities, new possibilities, and new ways to define myself, uh, that I might get trapped in uh, the identity I've established of myself and not be able to break free from that identity, especially now I'm 41, you know, and so you want to keep reinventing yourself. So I worry I might not be able to do that. I'm worried that um, I might take the easy path. Um, so yeah, I think that's what worries me the most that I become dictated by my past decisions and not be uh, open to new ones. Yeah. Well, I want to finish with one final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? What does what makes somebody or something unmistakable? Hmm. Yeah. I think it's authenticity. I think when you figure out who you are and you don't need to be somebody else and you don't need to have a facade around yourself, I think that's when I think of that person as unmistakable. Ah, amazing. Well, this has been really, really mind-blowingly cool and thought-provoking and insightful, as I expected it would be. Uh, where can people find out more about you, your work, uh, the book, and everything else that you're up to? Uh, yeah, so I enjoyed this a lot, too, and uh, it was thought-provoking for me, too. Uh, thank you for, for those uh, great questions. Now, uh, you know, I'm probably going to spend the rest of my day uh, reassessing a lot of things about my life. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, where can people find out more about myself? My website is uh, com. That's H-O-S-A-N-A-G-A-R. So www.hosanagar.com. On Twitter, I'm K Hosanagar. Uh, and my book is called A Human's Guide to Machine Intelligence. You'll find it on Amazon and, and, and most other bookstores. Um, yeah, so it's easy to find me on the web and easy to find my book and uh, my writing on the web as well. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.